My friends, I ask you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. As I begin the sermon, I'd like to look at this verse with you in Genesis 6, which we had preached on earlier. But if you could, with, with me, turn to Genesis 6 and verse 5. Genesis 6 and verse 5, where we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in verse 6 and verse 7, we read of God's resolve to destroy the earth, to destroy it completely, which then we know took place in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. The flood came and destroyed every living thing from off the earth. But now if you turn back with me to Genesis 8, and you look at verse 21, this is our text this morning, Genesis 8 and verse 21, we read these words, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. And then we read very similar words to what we read in Genesis 6 and verse 5. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now this brings us before what seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? In the ways of God. Because in Genesis 6, God looked at his creatures, and he saw that the intents of their hearts was only evil continually. That's what we call in our theological terminology, total depravity, right? That the depravity of man extends to every part of him, his inner, uh, his inner inclinations and desires, and his external actions are all marked by depravity. Even the good things he does are marked by depravity. But then we come to Genesis 8 and verse 21, and we read very similar language, that the intents of man's heart is evil from his youth, And we have God doing the very opposite thing. God saying, I will never again destroy the earth because of man. Now this presents us with a great opportunity, isn't it? Because when we come to these contradictions in Scripture, we know they're not really contradictions. They can't be contradictions, right? Because if one, if there really was a contradiction in Scripture, then that means that one side of it is false. In which case there would be something false in Scripture, which of course we will never admit. Scripture is God's word, it's all God's word, and therefore it's all true. That's the word that we use, again, a theological word here, infallible, right? Infallible means not even capable of being an error, right? Now, I suppose that in a a newspaper article, in the newspaper, or online, or whatever it may be, might not have any errors in it, right? It might be in that sense without error. But it could never be infallible, right? Every human document is at least capable of having an error in it. But Scripture has no error. And so when we come to these contradictions, we call them apparent contradictions because we know that there is no real contradiction. We simply have now the opportunity to dig deeper and to find out what is the case. How do we, why did God act so differently in Genesis 6 when he saw the wickedness and the evil on the earth and he determined to destroy the earth? And in Genesis 8... God looks and he sees evil and wickedness and he says, I will never again. He shows grace and mercy to mankind saying, I will never again destroy the earth. Now this is something that we have to, you might say, dig deeper, isn't it? 
And we have to find an answer to this. So in the first place, uh, on my outline there, I'm, I'm uh, an answer number one. What is the first possible answer or way to resolve this apparent contradiction? Well, we might say to ourselves that maybe man isn't as bad as he was before the fall or before the uh, flood. Maybe man was totally depraved before the flood, but after the flood he's not totally depraved anymore, and that's why God can show him some mercy. Now, that can't be the answer. And again, I, I, I bring you back to the language of verse 21. It's very similar language to Genesis 6 and verse 5. It says that even Noah's family that comes off the ark are still, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that's saying it in less words than what's said in Genesis 6, verse 5, but the statement there is still the same. That man, even after the flood, after he comes off the ark, is still totally depraved. The intents of his heart, the intent, that means his motives, his inclinations, his desires, are depraved. The flood did not change man's nature as totally depraved. Man is still totally depraved, even after he comes off the ark. So we have to scratch out, number one, it's not because man is any the less depraved that God shows him this mercy in Genesis 8, where he did not in Genesis 6. So then we come to the second possible answer here, and that is, does maybe God overlook man's sinfulness? And the language of the text kind of lends itself to this If you read it, some have interpreted it this way, right? It says in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for, or as it were, for this reason, here's why I won't curse the ground again, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Again, some people have interpreted this as as God is now looking at, at at his creatures and he's seeing that they're so irremediably depraved, in other words, They're so prone to depravity and sin and evil that there's nothing that can be done about them. They're hopeless. And so I'm just going to overlook it. We're just going to move forward, says God. And uh, whereas in Genesis 6, verse 5, I saw it and I wiped them out. In Genesis 8, God looks at the iniquity of man and says they're hopeless. There's nothing to be done for them. Their their depravity cannot be fixed. And so we're just gonna, I'm just going to wink at it, as it were. I'm just going to overlook it, pass it by, and I will never again curse the earth and destroy it like I did the first time with the flood. So does God just overlook? Does he decide that they're so... Uh, you can't fix their depravity in any way, and so we're just gonna, I'm just going to learn to live with it. Now, my friends, I would submit to you that that, too, is, is not a, a, the correct way to understand or to resolve this uh, conflict between Genesis 6 and Genesis 8. In fact, if you look at Genesis 8, verse 21, I think that the way we need to read this is when God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for this reason. Well, I believe that the reason that God is giving here is why God cursed the earth in the first place. So if I were to paraphrase this text, I would say something like, God, God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man because originally I cursed the ground for this reason, that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. But now I will never again, even in spite of his depravity, 
destroy every living thing as I have done before. So in other words, when God says the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, that's a reason for why God cursed the earth in the first place. Not a reason for why God promises never to curse the earth again. You follow me there? God is giving the reason why he cursed the earth in the first place. Not giving a reason for why he will never curse the earth again. So again, we, we reject this idea that uh, God is just going to overlook the sin and the evil that man commits. And of course, uh, we can think of many other texts right in Scripture which say very clearly right, that God does not pass over sin, that he must punish sin. God does not look at sin and just dismiss it and say, well, I'll let it pass this time. God punishes sin. Sin must be, uh, God's justice must be satisfied for sin. So we reject that second answer as well. Now, the third answer. And here is the, the true answer. There's a difference, isn't there, in, in what happens in Genesis 8, and that it is, that is, it is preceded by Noah building an altar. And my friends, here is what makes all the difference, all the difference between Genesis 6 and Genesis 8. In Genesis 6, there was no altar. There was no offering. There was no bloodshed. There was no soothing aroma. Do you see that in verse 21? No soothing aroma. I want to say more about that in a minute. But here in Genesis 8, we have an offering. We have bloodshed. And this makes all the difference in the world. This is why now God says, yes, man is still totally depraved. No, I will not just overlook and pass by their sin. It must be punished. But there's something else, dear friends, in verse 21. And that is the the, the smoke of this sacrifice wafting up to God. And that is so acceptable and pleasing to God. And the wrath of God, which we saw so sharply in Genesis 6, and which we saw the fruits of it in Genesis 7, where the flood came down and wiped out every living thing. Now in Genesis 8, the wrath of God is taken away. Not because Noah's a little bit better than he was before the flood, but because Noah steps out and in faith, blood is shed. And there is this soothing aroma that arises up to God. Why is it soothing, my friends? Now, if we had just this passage, we might not know. Again, we're very early in the Bible, aren't we? But, my friends, that word soothing there, that word soothing, that is the word that is used all throughout the book of Leviticus and in the Pentateuch. Every time the Bible talks about a sacrifice, that word soothing is used. And so when we, when we put Genesis 8.21 in the context of Scripture, we know that that sacrifice takes away God's wrath because blood is shed on that altar. And that offering goes up to God. And God sees satisfaction by way of substitution. The animal on the sacrifice is cut down and blood, it's, it's bloodshed. An innocent animal. The animal did nothing wrong. But that animal's blood is shed as a substitute for man. 
And in the face of that substitution, God's wrath is soothed or it is taken away. And of course, my friends, as Christians, we look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians? Because you see Paul, he takes exactly that language. So the book of Ephesians, right after the book of Galatians, and before the book of Philippians. Otherwise, you could just listen as I read this. It's just one verse. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, where Paul is urging the Ephesians to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And there's those same words now used by Paul in the New Testament, that the sacrifice of Christ was a soothing aroma to God. And the sacrifice of Christ takes away the wrath of God. It removes the wrath of God. And so, my friends, when we come back to Genesis 6, verse 5, and we see the terrible wrath of God poured out upon mankind, And in Genesis 8, we see a similar depravity of man, the same depravity, but now God makes a promise. I will never again wipe out the earth with a flood. And why? For only one reason, my friends. Not because man is any the better. And not because God relaxes his his strictness of his law. But because of that sacrifice. What a picture that is of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Well, my friends, I move then to the result of this sacrifice, which brings benefits. And now, my friends, I'd like to to consider with you the theology, quite a theological sermon, by the way, this morning, I think you'll find, uh, and yet with some practical benefit as well. But now I'd like to turn to you to consider something about this, this covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis 8. And one thing that we notice that catches our attention again, just as we saw the apparent conflict between Genesis 6 and Genesis 8, but now we come to Genesis 8 and verse 21, and we notice with whom God makes this covenant, and that the recipients of the blessings of this covenant are every living thing. So in Genesis 8 verse 21, you read, I will never again destroy every living thing, as I have done. And then 22 talks about the regular recurring seasons. And then if you go into Genesis 9, you see similar language is used in Genesis 9 and verse 9. So Genesis 9 and verse 9, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, that is with Noah, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And notice that this this extends even to the animals, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So here we have God making this covenant with the whole creation again. That just as God had previously judged the whole creation and wiped it out, now God is showing a measure of mercy and of grace to every living thing, man and animal alike. Now we have to ask ourselves at this point, don't we, that why at this point does God not instantly 
turn the entire creation over into hell forever. That would be justice, right? That would be justice. God has has no reason to keep these people around that are rebels. The thoughts and intents of their heart are only evil continually. We We would expect at this point to read that if God is just, that if he does not overlook and dismiss sin... That he would, he would condemn them. I mean, that would be justice. And yet there's this mercy shown to every living thing. Now again, uh, on the, on just like we would, we would understand if, if God had condemned everybody to hell, so on the other hand, we can understand that if God saved his people, and that if he gave them faith to believe in him, and to love him, to follow him, that he would save them and condemn the rest into hell. And yet here we find this situation that God is showing a measure of mercy to all creation. And it's a result of this sacrifice that Noah had offered. Well, this brings us to this theological issue, my friends, that I'd like to raise with you and and consider at length with you somewhat, because I know that this is something of a controversial issue, especially in our own circles and in our own Reformed churches, especially in the Dutch Reformed churches, is this question that I raise here about God's favor. Notice that on the back side here, I, I hope to have a theological application and a practical application. And here's the question then that we're considering this morning as we think about how to apply the truths that we've learned in Genesis 8. Here's the question which has troubled the Dutch Reformed churches in a great degree. Is there a favor or a mercy or a grace which God bestows on all people Now we know, and there's no disagreement, right, that God shows grace to his people. And that's why we call that a saving grace. Because by that grace he gives them faith, by which they appropriate the sacrifice of Christ for themselves, their sins are forgiven, and they're reconciled to God. But is there a favor, is there a grace of God that is non-saving, or common, or general, that does not bring people salvation, but still brings them a measure of grace and of mercy in this earth. In fact, we could say that even gives them a place on the earth, a place outside of hell. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this has only ever been a controversy in Dutch Reformed churches. I, I, and I don't know why that is. I can't explain that. It's just a fact of history. That it's only, if you look in the Presbyterian churches and the and the Lutheran churches, and the Methodist churches, and the Episcopalian churches, and even the Baptist and the Congregational churches, you don't ever find any controversy over this issue of a common grace or a common favor that God shows to all people. So this is something that is uniquely discussed in Dutch Reformed churches. And we find that the issue is first raised by Calvin. Calvin, as I I put on the outline there, Calvin was the a man in the Reformed churches, you don't find much of this in Luther or in Zwingli or the other Reformers, but in Calvin's Institute, you can find Calvin. And Calvin especially was wondering about one thing that he saw in the world. He says, how is it that some of these pagan philosophers, some of these pagan uh, 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 government officials and, and uh, politicians have such gifts of rhetoric, have so many gifts of, of being able to speak and to manage a society well, and to, and to, uh, and to um, uh, so many gifts of, of, of making beautiful music and of writing good, helpful philosophy and things like that. How is that? When, God's, when God shows so much favor and grace to his people, 
How is it that these people are able to perform these things? And Calvin wrestles with that issue, but he doesn't really take it much beyond that. He raises the issue. He, he talks about a sort of general favor that God has given to these people, by which he's given them these gifts. And yet, of course, it's not a saving favor, is it? God did not choose to bring Cicero, for instance, to faith in Christ. And yet Calvin would say, who can deny that Cicero had tremendous gifts of philosophy and of, and of political ability? Later in the Dutch churches especially, you have these, these men, and I think you'll recognize some of these names, like Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, and Herman Bovink, who made much more of this idea that God has a common grace or a common favor for all mankind. In fact, I have a, a volume in my library that is very thick, very thick by Abraham Kuyper, who wrote a great deal on this subject. Well, uh, in, in 1892, and some of you will remember this from the church history uh, sessions we did here on Wednesday, when, these, uh, when the secession churches, after they split off of the Dutch state church in the, in the uh, mid-1800s, they, they joined together in 1892. But as so often happens in these church unions, there's lots of uh, debates and controversies still swirling about in these churches that don't get resolved just because they come together. Well, this was one of those debates that happened. And in, uh, over time, this issue of God's common favor to the non-elect people blew up, you might say, into a major controversy. And in 1924, was finally brought to an end in the Synod of Kalamazoo. Isn't that interesting? This synod was ac- actually held in the first Christian Reformed Church here in Kalamazoo, which I understand is still there yet. Well, in 1924, this is what gave birth then to the uh, new denomination, our brothers and sisters in the Protestant Reformed denomination. Some of you have roots in that denomination. And this now is the controversy that has arisen between the original Christian Reformed denomination and the Protestant Reformed denomination. And this became quite a bitter controversy. Quite a bitter controversy. And some of you might ask for that very reason, Pastor, why are you bringing this up then? Are you trying to stir up strife? Well, not at all. Uh, of course, that's not my, my, uh, my intent. My intent, my friends, is that God gives these controversies to the church, and if we use them rightly, they can be very helpful things in our church life by motivating us to go back to the Scriptures and to try to understand what is it that the Scripture teaches. That is a good thing. Now, the devil rejoices when we start throwing rocks at each other and when we start damning each other to hell because we differ on tiny little points of doctrine. I'm not saying this is a tiny point of doctrine, but there are many things like this, right? You don't use quite the same words that I do, right? So not only is it an opportunity and a a motivation for us to go back to the Scripture and to open it up and to sit at the feet of Scripture to be Bereans, but it also gives us an opportunity to love each other and to tolerate some of these differences that exist amongst us. So let's look at this then. What are these points of uh, disagreement that we have with our brothers and sisters who have separated from us many years ago? No, almost 100 years ago, isn't it now? So point one I put on the outline there, and I'd like to read that with you. The Synod of Kalamazoo actually published three of these points, and the Christian Reformed denomination, of course, gives their assent to these points. They agree with them. And the Protestant Reform uh, men 
men like Herman Huxema and uh, Henry Danhoff and George Apoff. If you don't know these names, that's fine. But these are some of the men who led the exodus out of the uh, Christian Reformed denomination. But point one I've given you there, and it really sums it up for us. And it says, concerning the favorable attitude of God toward mankind in general, and not only toward the elect, the Synod declares that it is certain on the ground of Scripture and the Confession that there is, besides the saving grace of God, shown only to those chosen unto eternal life, also a certain favor or grace of God which he shows to all all his creatures. So there's the point of doctrine that is stated. Nearly all Reformed denominations would agree with that statement, and the Protestant Reformed and some few others would would disagree with it. Now, first of all, let's begin on our, our common ground here. What are the things that we agree on? There's no disagreement between us on the fact that God gives good gifts to all people. There's no disagreement between us on that point. The Protestant Reformed and the Christian Reformed and all the Presbyterian and, and, uh, and, and other Christian churches all agree that God gives rain and sunshine. We sang of that in one of the hymns that we already sang. We read of that in our text, right? That God gave, because of the sacrifice that Noah offered up, this resolve, this promise, that he would never again destroy the earth, not just for his chosen people, but for all people, even including the animals that creep along the earth. This is what uh, such a, a, this would be a, a text that the synod at the time would have leaned on in support of this truth. So we all agree on that, that God gives good gifts to mankind. Now the point of disagreement, however, is just this. The Christian Reformed Church, and I I would include myself in this, this would be my position, and I suspect probably most of your position. Again, if, if not, we can talk about that and we can certainly live together in peace. However... The, the, uh, the Synod of Kalamazoo and the Christian Reformed denomination as a whole said that these good gifts that God gives to all people come from God's favor, come from a, a, a goodness that is in God that he extends to all people that does not bring them to salvation, but for all that is still a manifestation, a display, as it were, of God's favor and goodness to all men. The Protestant Reformed brothers have disagreed with that and said, no, yes, God does give good gifts to people, but that comes from his disfavor. In fact, it comes from his hatred of them. And it comes from his wrath of them against them. Uh, One illustration that they have sometimes used is that God gives good gifts in the same way that a farmer might feed his his cattle or his, his hogs very well, right? To fatten them for the slaughter. Right? Because, not because he, he, he loves them so much, but because he's, he has a, a, a purpose for it. So that God does indeed give rain and sunshine, and even here that God gave this covenant, not because God had a general favor and love for all mankind, but because he loved his elect people, and he had determined already to damn the rest, and therefore he might say just, he, he, he allows them to live and to flourish in order that one day he might hurl down his wrath and fire of, and fiery judgments upon them. So therein is the difference. Is the, are, are these good gifts, do they come from a, a favor and God's goodness, or do they come from his wrath and his judgment? This is the difference 
that is agitated, you might say, between us on this issue of God's favor. Now I just want to bring you one text. There are other texts, but again, I I don't want to make this too long. But in Matthew 5 and verse 44, one text that I would give you uh, to consider. And and my friends, let me just say as we're turning there, you know, this is not a, a issue of, well, you know, it was good enough for my grandfather or it was good enough for my uncle or... You know, I uh, personally, you know, I have this, or I grew up in this Christian Reformed denomination, or I grew up in this denomination, right? This is a matter, my friends, of what does the Word of God teach? I really hope that we can share common ground on that score as well. That it's simply a matter of what does the Word of God teach? And so in Matthew 5 and verse 44, these are very familiar words, right? Let's start in verse 43, Matthew 5 and verse 43, where Jesus says to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But now Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect uh, or mature or complete as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's the teaching of Jesus, first of all, on what we all agree on, right? That God makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. But now I just submit to you the point that we disagree on. Does this come from a position of God as a display, as a manifestation of his goodness and of his favor, of his love, or from his wrath and of his judgment? Now, I read this text to say that to be sons of our Father who is in heaven, that is, if we are going to be like him, we must love both the evil and the good, those who do good to us and those who do evil to us. Just like our Father in heaven loves those who do good and who do evil. Now, uh, our brothers and sisters uh, who disagree with on this would, would interpret this text this way, that they would say, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who loves his elect people. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. Now, I would submit to you, my friends, that's a very difficult to accept that interpretation because if, if the text is teaching us that God loves his elect people and hates, only hates his non-elect people, then we're to be sons of our Father who is in heaven. We're to be like him. That's, that's the whole point of Jesus' teaching there. That we're to be like, we're to love the way Jesus does. Well, if we're to love the way Jesus, I'm sorry, we're to love the way God, our Father, does. So if we love the way God does, then it would seem that we should love both those who do good to us and who do evil to us because that's what he does. Well, again, uh, if if you read that verse a different way, I would embrace you in Christian love. Uh, But uh, that is the point of disagreement. And that is a a scripture that I think you should uh, consider and, 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 and study as you think about this subject. So, my friends, hopefully uh, I've I've been able to lay that before you in a way that brings us to the truth of Scripture and helps us to submit to it. 
Again, my friends, I've told you already that these controversies come to us and we can use them in a very useful way. Because now I would like to switch from uh, the point where we disagree to, I think, a point that our Protestant Reformed brothers and sisters have made and have made very well. And something that we should give our hearty agreement to and even reflect on our own practice and see once if maybe we haven't slipped a bit in this. Now, this would be a, a case where I would, I would want to tell my Protestant Reformed brothers, I think you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. All right? I, I think that the whole doctrine of common grace is biblical. But still, the critique that they made of the abuse of common grace is something that we can definitely take home with us today and learn from. And this is what they have told us, and this is what they have brought to our attention by way of this controversy. And that is that the doctrine of common grace is very easily abused. Here's why. We can think to ourselves, right, of of psychologists. And we can go to a secular psychologist. And we can learn from them, right? We can say that God in his common favor to mankind has given this psychologist great wisdom. And we learn from them. I, I trust that when we go to a restaurant, we don't ask if the cook was a was a Christian. Right? We, can, we, can, we can be blessed by even secular cooks who can, who've been given by God uh, gifts of cooking a wonderful meal. In the youth group a while back, we had a discussion about listening to the music of secular musicians. And who can deny, my friend, that some of these musicians who do not love God have phenomenal musical gifts? But see, now right there comes the danger. Because in looking at the doctrine of God's common favor and the common gifts that he gives to all men, we forget the truth of the antithesis. Remember, that's what we learned from Genesis 3.15, that God has put between the children of the serpent and the children of the, of the woman, the, child, the children of Eve, the spiritual children of Eve, a enmity. And the doctrine of common grace can very quickly lead us to forget about that truth, to forget about that distinction that God has put between the world and the church. And what begins to happen inevitably is the world and the church begin to blur together. They begin to, they begin to again like the daughters, like the, the sons of Seth, when they looked over at the daughters of Cain, right? And they forgot about the antithesis. They forgot about the enmity that God has put between the world and the church. And the doctrine of common grace can certainly lead us in that direction. And this is a point that we must take from this controversy and humbly accept it as certainly true. And so, my friends, the practical application that I would give you this morning is to learn from this controversy the danger that comes when we begin to appreciate the gifts that God has given to all people and we begin to forget the fact that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. And pretty soon we, forget, we, 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 we begin to forget that this secular music, while it may be played with great skill and tremendous, tremendous, uh, tremendous skill, may very well still have an immoral bent to it. And the inevitable tendency of our own depraved hearts is to begin to dismiss that to overlook that, maybe even to embrace it. Because, well, we believe that God has given these people wonderful gifts. 
And I can go right on down the line of all the different manifestations of worldliness in our churches, my friends. Movies. Who can deny that God has given tremendous gifts to movie directors to write these stories and to pattern these films after these stories? Right? And the, and the popularity of many secular works in our time. Right? And yet perhaps, not perhaps, it certainly happens, my friends, that we begin to overlook the sinful, immoral parts of it. And we accept that. We even embrace it. Some of us can begin to think of, of uh, especially when it comes to issues of scholarship, this is something that hits home with me because I fell prey to it. This is personal to me, my friends. When you go to university, when you go to seminary, even Christian seminaries, in fact, if I can name names, I will. Kelvin College, I believe, Hope College are testimonies to this terrible disaster that happens. When we begin to look at secular scholarship in science and all the different fields, and we begin to feel we don't want to be known as the Christian scholars, we don't want to feel the reproach of those who say, well, you guys are some naive fundamentalists, you Bible-beating people over there you know, who still believe that the earth was created in six days, and we begin to feel that, don't we? And we begin to resent it. We don't want to be seen as the people outside the realm of good scholarship. And so we begin to downpedal. We begin to downplay these things, right? In order that we can be accepted by all these secular people. Accepted, my friends. Genesis 3.15, God has put enmity between the two of us. And we want to be accepted by them. So, my friends, I think that even as we even as we may disagree theologically with the, those who oppose the doctrine of God's common favor to all people, we have to accept the reality of the, of, the, of the critique that they give us because I think it's absolutely true that when people begin to think this way, the inevitable result is increase of worldliness in the church. And pretty soon, the church looks different than the world. I'm sorry, the church and the world begin to look the same. We act the same. We think the same. We use the same language. We partake of the same media. My friends, these things ought not so to be. This is, a, this is the church going down a wrong path. This is forgetting about the enmity that God has put between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. This is why, this is why we appreciate, at least I appreciate so much, men like John MacArthur who stands bold, and I'm not saying that every decision he made was perfectly wise, but the man doesn't care about the uh, esteem of the world and of secular scholars and of secular people. He doesn't care. People like Pastor Al Martin, who doesn't seem to have any fear, and he preaches that way, and he, and he, and he, and he, he, he leads his ministry in that way. So, my friends... I, I submit this to your case then a, as, a, as a theological issue and as a practical issue and that we would steer a straight course on the teaching of Holy Scripture, that we would embrace those who differ from us on these points and that we would learn from each other how to better serve God in this dark world in which we live. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you uh, this, this morning, uh, we've placed this issue on the table, Lord, that uh, has torn apart people who belong together. 
And we pray, O oh God, that we would not be so proud uh, as to try to widen the distance between us, but that we would realize, O oh Lord, that uh, there's much truth in the, in, the, in the critique that has been made of the doctrine of common grace. And I pray, O oh God, that as a church, that we would be stronger as a result of it, and that we would give no uh, room for Satan to get his foot in the door and to begin to divide us. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Protestant Reformed churches that you would bless their ministries, Lord, and that you would bless the stand that they have taken on this, this doctrine of the antithesis, and that you would, uh, be, uh, and that you would give uh, wisdom also to us, Lord, uh, to, be, to, to see the wisdom and the truth in the stands that they've taken. Lord, we pray that you would bless us. We pray, Lord, for those churches who have gone the opposite direction and who have embraced worldliness and who have forgotten the antithesis that stands between the world and the church. Lord, I pray for our church because we know that, Lord, we too have not been uh, innocent in this regard, and that we too have looked across the, uh, uh, looked across the way, as it were, and seen the, the practices, the, the philosophies, the worldview and the, and the, uh, of the world, and we have uh, also embraced it in some respects. And so I pray, O oh God, that you would give us to be honest with ourselves this morning and to, to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, to examine our families, to examine our homes, to find those places, Lord, where we've compromised with the world and with its way of life. And help us to be ruthless, O oh Lord, in rooting out these things, taking back our life, taking all things captive to Christ, putting all things under the Lordship of Christ and serving and honoring you. Lord, if we need to make changes in our life, help us to be uh, courageous enough to submit to your word and to make those changes. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we seek to walk in the way of obedience and in the way of repentance and to serve and to honor you in this world with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Lord, we do thank you for the favor that you show to us But especially, Lord, this evening we end in your saving grace. Here is where we boast. This is where we take our stand. That apart from grace, your grace, O God, we were utterly lost and condemned. And so we cry out as a church together, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Glory to your grace and your favor, which rescued us from hell and set us upon that rock, that rock of life which can never be moved. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then this morning. And also this evening as we return to church again, may the worship of your name, Lord, may it be bread and water, honey on the honeycomb for us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's turn then to number 419 in the blue hymnal. 419, where we read... uh, or where we sing of the mercy of God. Thus saith the mercy of the Lord, I'll be a God to thee. I'll bless thy numerous race, and they shall be a seed to me. Here is God's saving grace shown by making covenants with Abraham and also with us through Christ. So let's sing the five verses of 419.